Welcome to Erotic Awakening, an exploration of all things erotic. Every Thursday, your hosts, Dan and Dawn, share with you their experience and insights on kink, power exchange, and erotic life, as well as bring you interviews with exciting people from various lifestyles. Then every Monday, you'll hear from our various guest hosts. These nationally known educators bring a variety of experience to the mics and share with you an ever-increasing diverse world of alternative life. Erotic Awakening is intended for mature audiences. If you are offended by adult topics or prohibited by law, we recommend you stop listening right now. Hello, fellow adventurers of sexuality and spirit, and welcome to Erotic Awakening with Lee Harrington. In this monthly show, we've dived into everything from dominance and submission to paganism, from looking at faith and erotic connection all the way up to environmental issues, STDs, and all kinds of other things. But this month, I'm, I'm annoyed. This month, I have been reading a lot of various books and keeping myself busy as I deal with all kinds of things in my life. And I had a chance to read a little tiny chapbook that's by Sandra Ingram, and it's all about healing toxic thoughts. Now, it's funny that a book called Healing Toxic Thoughts would cause me to be frustrated. Maybe it's not that strange. Maybe thinking about these things puts them into perspective. It's a good book. That's not the rant. It's a good book because it talks about everything from how we, as individuals, unintentionally create violence when we think about things too loud. It talked about all kinds of notions of healing ourselves because our toxic thoughts that go out into the universe are oftentimes the toxic thoughts that we have brewing inside our own essence. These are powerful messages. But my rant starts with something near the very end of the book. She has a ritual where she talks about the idea of embracing all of the different elements, where we turn to the earth and look for the solidness of the earth and bury ourselves down in the earth. She talks about the idea of water and feel the water slowly and sensually washing over our bodies to let go of toxins and let the earth take our, to let the water take our pain. She talks about air and feeling ourselves out in the air as the wind blasts us and, just, and takes away the entirety of our pain and our toxic thoughts. And then she says, and then we turn to fire and imagine fire in the form of the sun bathing us with light. This bugs the hell out of me. This bugs me because it reminds me of how in the kink community we do the exact same thing. Oh, breath play. Breath play is so dangerous. Breath, breath play is so edgy. Breath play could kill you. Well, so what? So could all of the other elemental forms of play, which we seem to let go all the time. I'm not saying do breath play. I think breath play is incredibly dangerous. But let's look at the other ones, shall we? Let's look at the fact that fire play has the capacity of getting out of control at any moment. Even with people I know who are incredibly talented with fire, there's the possibility of that one drip of alcohol going down into somebody's crease of skin and serious burns happening. I've seen people's hairspray catch on fire. I've seen all kinds of things gone wrong. 
I have a person that I know who had a branding done where the brand was done way too hot and it literally turned part of their skin into taffy. Fireplay is dangerous. Earth play. Burying people in the earth, doing submersions in mud, doing things where people are crawling through or crawling on the dirt. People think all the time, oh, it's just somebody wrestling around in mud, right? Well, what's in that mud? What's in that dirt? What bacterium are in there? And when we're talking about burials, when we're talking about putting anybody under the ground, the possibilities for profound harm are definitely there. And with water, submerging people under water, doing water torture. I love the fact that there's an entire trend right now in the kink community around wanting to do waterboarding. You know what? It's called a torture because people actually have their spirit break. All forms of elemental play are dangerous. And all forms of elements, just like fire, when she was talking about, oh, embrace the sun, which is so far away, embrace its light. No, no, embrace the fire. Because every single form of elemental working can be sweet. Every single form of elemental working can be profoundly dangerous. Feel the water push and wash over your body, or feel the tsunami break upon you. Lay against the earth and absorb its strength, or feel the earthquake wake and break underneath you as bridges fall and hundreds, thousands die. Feel the softness of the air caressing your flesh. Feel the wind carrying you in and out. Or feel Hurricane Katrina. Feel the fire dancing upon your skin. The drip, drip, drip of hot wax as it caresses you. Or feel the fire burn. Burn and smolder, your hair smoking away, your skin turning to a crisp. It's one of the reasons that I get so frustrated and confused by the notion of what we call edge play. A single item has the capacity to be incredibly dangerous, incredibly, quote, edgy, as far as edge that requires us to have a distinct form of skill to even be able to handle the implement. But it also has the possibility of being incredibly sweet or sensual. I remember being at Dark Odyssey Fusion last year, and my partner Aiden ended up making this giant wheel for us to play with Wheel of Misfortune, which was run by Great Answer. And if you guys haven't heard Great Answer's podcast, seriously, go check out the Ropecast at some point. It's been running for a number of years. And Great Answer was going to be doing spin the wheel, was the idea. You spin the wheel, and then you end up landing on a square, just like Wheel of Fortune. It just was Wheel of Misfortune. And let's say you could land on lovely piece of cake, or piercing, or punching, or cuddling. And as people rolled these different things, if they didn't like what they got, they had the opportunity to re-roll again by spending one coin. And everybody had been given a few coins at the beginning of the event. Cute little wooden coins that had a uh, serpent coiled up in the kundalini cash. And it was funny because people looked at the wheel and went, oh, cuddling, that's so sweet. A hug, that's so sweet. Tickling, that's such beginner play. 
and saw a single tail and went, ooh, edge play. Ooh, I'm not so sure about that. Punching and kicking, ooh, grappling, er, fucking machines, ooh, I'm not so sure. And it was hilarious to me because I think the edgiest thing on that board was the cuddling. And that's not because I'm anti-cuddling. I love cuddling. It was the cuddlers and the way they cuddled. They were two of the creepiest cuddle girls I have ever seen. They kind of oozed on up to people and went, Hi, I want to cuddle you. And it was just disturbing to bear witness to the way that they did that, the way that they made cuddling a truly edgy activity. And so when we think about any form of play, just as we think of any element, it can be incredibly sensual or incredibly sadistic. It can be something that is sweet or something that can go into a place of danger really quickly. I think about the rope bondage community, for example, and the number of people I know who say, oh, well, if you're just starting out in rope bondage, you want to start out with floor work, because floor work is a really safe and easy thing. And when you're going to get more experience, either as a top or as a bottom, as a rigger or as a model, you're going to get into suspensions, because suspensions are really, really hard on both tops and bottoms. And I'm going to cry bullshit. Because some of the edgiest scenes that I have ever done as a bottom are floor work. I remember playing with Mortis, one of well, the founder of ShibariCon, more accurately, and we were at an event in Atlanta. He tied me into a lotus position, my uh, tops of my feet above each other, hands back behind my back in a prayer, my palms facing each other. Now, these two things are what I would consider advanced skills for a bottom. But the thing that made this scene especially edgy is that I had gotten my nose pierced. And he tied my nose piercing using dental floss down to my ankles. I was held in this position, and mind you, getting there was absolutely hilarious because they had to figure out how to run dental floss through a nasal piercing, which was a bit of a challenge in a dark dungeon. But once that happened, the pain was excruciating. The pain was absolutely horrible. It was one of the edgier scenes I've done. And in fact, also thinking of M's, Morpheus, he and I at ShibariCon two years ago did a scene where he tied my elbows together behind my back, uh, put me up onto my shoulders into a headstand, into a shoulder stand, excuse me, into a shoulder stand with my elbows tied together behind my back, my hands pulled in one direction, one ankle pulled in another direction, and the other ankle tied up in the air. It was messed up. It was crazy. It was physically dangerous. It was incredibly edgy for the spectators and for me. We didn't know if I was going to end up dislocating something, breaking something. Floor work can be incredibly edgy. And then I think of suspensions, and I have to point out, because keep, people keep forgetting it, sitting in a hammock is suspension. Getting into a sling to get fisted is suspension. I have a vision in my head of a ritual that I really want to do for someone in the uh, pagan community, preferably a practitioner of Freya. It was designed originally for a Freya practitioner who never ended up doing it, where it would be mummifying someone, lifting them up into a hammock, sewing that hammock shut, 
and having them sit there, lay there in that hammock for an extended period of time is a form of meditation, a form of neliomancy, a form of doing divination through the nothingness and the sound and sensory deprivation. This would be sweet and yet challenging. It would be a sweet ordeal, just like the Lady of Bees herself. For she is an incredibly powerful deity who is able to lay herself out to be able to acquire that which the gnomes had. Incredibly power un uh, powerful unto herself, and yet she is also incredibly sweet and loving. These dichotomies exist in everything. And yet we're all carrying around these notions of what's hardcore, what's easy, what is challenging. And it's based entirely on projection of what we think. If we were in that moment, what we think would be really challenging. I know some people that will happily play with burying because they've done it so many times and it's something that's really comforting to a degree for them. Or being encased in layers upon layers of fabric. That that's something that they find delicious and yummy. And I know other people that if you even mention the idea of a spider being in the same room as them, would be horrible. I know some people that if you wanted to cuddle with them, and it's not even a creepy cuddler, it would be a horrible thing. Now, for some of us, our projections are based on what we've seen, what we've borne witness to. When I uh, had my lips sewn shut last year, I... Uh, did it because it had been both a tantalizing fantasy but also a profound fear. I had uh, seen someone. I'd thought about it and had a fantasy about having my mouth sewn shut, but then I saw someone actually do it. And it left me so profoundly paralyzed that I was convinced that sewing your mouth shut is one of the edgiest and most horrible things you can do in another human being. And I never wanted to do it. I was convinced the person was crazy that they wanted to play with that same top again. But that's because it affected me. I saw it, and I bore witness to it, and therefore the next time, and the time after that, and the time after that that I heard or saw anything about facial sewing or facial piercing, other than basic forehead piercings, which I was happy to do, but anything involving the mouth, I thought people were crazy. What the hell are you talking about? No, that's one of the edgiest things you could do, but that was based on my experience of what I'd seen, not of what I'd experienced. And were the piercings painful when it came that day? Yeah. Were they the worst thing I've ever done? No. I have done, quote, far edgier things. It was still a challenge. It was still horrible. I still couldn't finish as many piercings as I was hoping to. But that's projection, too. The idea that there's a should, a have to, a need to, when it comes to our sexuality. There's not a need to. Fine. I was hoping to get fisted that night, and instead my body was only able to take three fingers. Cool. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely. So what's the issue? Why are we holding ourselves to these ridiculously high standards of what we think we should be doing in general? Why are the shoulds shoulding all over us? It doesn't make sense. And yet it does make sense because it's based on those projections. And we live in a world of projections. We live in a world where we think we know what's going on. And yet, as the immortal Kermit the Frog would say, rainbows are visions, they're only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide.
rainbows are real, right? We see them, we experience them, we dream them, we talk about them, we go chasing after them, we paint them. But rainbows are also illusions. They are refracted light upon drops of water. They're not real, and yet they are. And so it is with our perceptions and our relationships and our things that we live through and live in. They are real, but they are also projections. And when we actually become aware of these projections, we have the capacity to actually understand the system symbol sets that we're working in, to actually understand the symbol sets that we're working in. I mention that because I was at uh, the Floating World in New Jersey a couple of years ago, and I was at the Sacred Sexuality and Sacred Kink Roundup that happened there. It was really interesting because I'd say half the people in the room were presenters, and the other half the people of the room were incredibly educated and knowledgeable on the two topics. And I will never forget the all but row that broke out between Raven Caldera and Fakir Musafar. Now, Fakir Musafar is the founder of the modern body primitive movement in a lot of ways, the grandfather, I should say, not necessarily founder, but the grandfather. He's in his 80s. He's a delightful individual, but he also has a very specific perspective when it comes to body modification, comes to borrowing from other cultures and other faiths. Raven Caldera is a northern tradition shaman who engages in a lot of ordeal work in his ritualism and has been known to borrow from all kinds of different traditions and be able to modify it to specifically the symbol set of who he's working with. And what Raven said after Fakir had gone on this beautiful tirade, this beautiful speech about how when we're using hook suspension, we have to understand the classical nature of the Okipa ceremony and understand how the Hindu people specifically use these when jumping off of platforms and understand the Phuket vegan, uh, the mysteries of the Phuket vegetarian rites and understand that we have to respect these things and only do them if we've understand, understood and become indoctrinated to them. And Raven said, yeah. We have to understand their symbol set. And if I'm working with a person, I have to understand their symbol set. And so if for them, I'm now going into my own words, not Raven's, if an individual is moved profoundly by a hook suspension because for them it means something specific and has nothing to do for them with what is actually happening for somebody experiencing the Okipa, the chest hang. If it has nothing to do with the Okipa ritual and has everything to do with their internal symbol set, why do they need to do it in the exact same way that the people of the Okipa do? The people that are doing the Okipa, I should say. Why? Why should they do it in exactly the same way when it means something different to them? We can use the same technology, I would argue. We can use the same technology to have it mean something completely different. An angel and what appears as an angel for one person is a demon for another. I think of Melictus, the peacock angel of the Yazidi, who is also Melictus of the fairy tradition, but a different deity to a degree. But of the Yazidi, he is an angel with peacock wings who is beautiful and terrible and awesome in the classical use of the word awesome to inspire awe. And he is so awesome 
that there is a painting of him in the darkest of dark caves that they always light candles in front of because if he ever plunges into darkness he will come back and we would prefer o lord melictus we would prefer o lord melictus that you not come back while to other folk of iraq and iran and that region they are devil worshippers they believe that they are angel worshippers they believe that they are worshippers of the one and true god just as others are and yet for others they are demon worshippers but that is because for them the notion of anything that must have candles lit before it so that it does not come back must be a demon and yet if we look at descriptions of angels from the old testament and if we look at it from other perspectives as well there are things that are chairs with rotating gears and eyes and things with eight wings and beautiful terrible monsters that have been birthed that are all called angels that are all called angels the seraphim the cherubim i find it fascinating as a note that we call cherubs those cute little fluffy things that are nothing like what the cherubs are described as in various books if we look back far enough i'm not sure what those little fat babies with wings are but they are not cherubs anyway sidetrack we have to understand what our symbol sets are and so if i look into my own life a leather cap with a polished brim also known as a cover for me is a profound statement of mastery and i get my feathers ruffled as i project onto the world that other people's covers mean the same thing or should mean the same thing while the reality is there are people who go oh that's sexy i want to wear it period the end it means nothing else period the end and yet i get so upset because quote that cover should mean something to them unquote you know that cover should mean something to them but that's my story that's my projection that's my culture that's where I've come from and it might mean that to a lot of people and I might hunger to have that mean something to everyone but it doesn't a ring on the left in, uh, the, on the left ring finger it's the fact that it's even the second finger starting at the pinky is called the ring finger talks about the symbol sets of our culture but a on the left hand on the ring finger a ring if we come from a judeo-christian background or specifically a european christian background and some stuff a little bit outside of that but originally from those frameworks it means that somebody is married or betrothed that they are monogamous that they have no outside partners that they are in a serious committed relationship that has financial emotional social and psychological entanglement well, what if I just want to wear a ring on that finger because it looks good or it feels good? When I encounter others, I will have people make the assumption that I am married or betrothed in a monogamous relationship and I'm not available to anyone else because I'm running into their projections based on the symbol sets of a culture. I have my own projections. And I ask you, as you listen to this, to consider what are some of your projections or what's been projected upon you what projections do you have in your dominance and submission what projections do you have in your kink or your sex life 
What projections do you have in your faith or your ritual workings? What projections do you have over the language and the words you use? What projections do you carry? And what projections have been projected upon you? It's important for us to work with our language sets and understand who are talking to us at the same time. As an example, if I'm working in the BDSM community and I say, I would like to do some CBT with you, it means cock and ball torment or torture. I personally like cock and ball torment. It allows for a whole lot more flexibility. I want to do some cock and ball torment with you. What do you say? Now, if I go to other places and say, I'd like to do some CBT with you, it will elicit a different response or reaction. If I'm in the world of computer programming, CBT is computer-based training. And if I'm working with psychotherapists, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. This can lead to profound amusement if we think we're having one conversation and they think we're having another. I find CBT really difficult. Wow, me too. What don't you like about it? I find that I don't enjoy how much it pushes me. I completely concur. And we think we're having the same conversation. But we're not, even though we're using the exact same words. And that can apply to our kink as well, specifically, right? Let's think about the notion of a collar. I'd like you to wear my collar. Okay, so does that mean that I would like to be in a long-term, committed relationship with you with no other people involved in my life whatsoever? Or does that mean I'd like to play with you tonight and I'd like you to wear my collar for the duration of the scene? This is really important for us to discuss our symbol sets with each other for exactly this reason. I myself have found, have found myself caught up in some of these things sometimes where I think I've been incredibly clear on communication and for others it wasn't quite so much. And I think that's an important thing to consider is that even for folks like myself who've been in the kink community for 15 years now or whatever date I'm at, that even for those of us who think that we've been communicating really well for a really long time, it's still bumpy and we're still working with those projections. We still think we know what's edge play and that we know what soft and beginner play is. And it also infers the beginners want something soft. It infers that people who have been playing for a really long time want something or are capable of doing something hard. These two are projections that the book of the time don't have any validity. Somebody coming into the scene might want to do that facial lip sewing thing. Somebody who's been in the scene for 35 years might really want to sensually cuddle for a night and call that the scene that they want to do. It's all valid. It's all reasonable. And that's my hope, is that instead of blindly projecting, you and I and I become aware of the projections that we're using, both on the world at large and on ourselves, because we're shooting all over ourselves, too. And with that, my name is Lee Harrington, and thank you for joining me on Erotic Awakening. If you have any questions around sexuality, spirituality, kink, gender, connection, identity, or anything else, please feel free to drop me an email at lee, L-E-E, at passionandsoul.com 
with the subject line Ask Lee, and I'll respond to it either on the podcast or in some way, shape, or form, or on my Ask Lee column on passionandsoul.com. You can also find me everywhere on the internet by doing a search for Lee Harrington, or Passion and Soul as one word, on FetLife.com, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, DeviantArt, and more. So thank you, fellow adventurers of sexuality and spirit, for joining me. This has been Erotic Awakening with Lee Harrington, and until next time, stay cool, have fun, be authentically you, and have a fantastic journey.